Leadership is something I think is very hard to learn from a textbook. I think it's much easier to learn by just immersing yourself in it and, and being around good leaders, watching them in action. Welcome back to the Inspired Execution Podcast. Each episode shares the experience and learnings of a world-class leader on their journey to success. The guests on this podcast are bold, brilliant, and not afraid to change. As you navigate your own path, we hope you feel inspired by their stories, lessons learned, and the vision of the future. This week, we're joined by Kelly Battles, a seasoned leader, CFO, and board member for many enterprises at the forefront of innovation. From her education at Princeton and Howard to changing the world one board seat at a time, Kelly knows what it takes to lead teams and scale businesses. We talk about turning obstacles into defining moments and how the role of mentors have played a key part in our journeys. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Chet, thank you so much for hosting me today. I'm very excited to get the chance to talk to you. For the audience that doesn't know, Kelly is actually the head of our audit committee as well as on our board, and I'm really looking forward to this episode. I'd love to get started by asking, what is the one thing professionally or personally that you are looking forward to right now and why? Professionally, I think I'm looking forward to what a lot of us are out there looking forward to, which is getting back to some sort of post-COVID normalcy in our kind of daily work life. But even more exciting for me personally is that my our daughter is about to graduate from college. And so I'm super excited in the next uh, week or so to be celebrating this graduation with her and then afterwards taking a celebratory trip to Greece with two of my best college friends and our families. So that's, you know, that's something near term that I'm very much looking forward to personally. We've talked about this, Kelly, your son going through high school, your dog going through college. As they went through this time, is there some advice you gave them that you think they implemented and it helped them quite a bit? When I've reflected with them on education and taking advantage of education, I went to Princeton. I was an engineer at Princeton and I went to Harvard Business School. But I think the most valuable learning experience I had in my education was with a professor in my high school in Birmingham, Alabama, our European world history professor who taught us for two years in, in ninth and 10th grade. And he really taught me that the world is a huge place. He opened my eyes to kind of a broader, more diverse ecosystem that I really wanted to experience as much of it as possible, as fast as possible. And I really have tried to impart that on our kids. He did things like, even though he's teaching European history, he called us in class. He gave us a subscription to Time Magazine for two years and gave us a weekly quiz, five question quiz on current events. He gave us an atlas at the beginning of, of ninth grade and said, you need to learn this and I'm going to give you an exam at the end of ninth grade and at the end of 10th grade because I want you to understand the world. He made us do very controversial debates. He had a, a panel discussion at the end of every year called Meeting of the Minds where we had to be a person in history, not just answering his unstructured questions, surprise questions, but also graded on how we became that person. And so he really pushed the bounds of what the world was to me as a, as a ninth and 10th grader in Alabama. And so I've, I've tried to impart that on my kids. It was just like ex experience the world and be a global citizen and taught me the power of, of one person or one leader and how if you're really good and passionate at what you do, 
you can minimally change a person's life and at best make the world a better place. And so I've also tried to impart that on my kids. That is so insightful to actually just have a professor or a teacher actually change your perspective and you keep, you know, propagating that through all your walks, right? He was very meaningful to my life. In fact, I send him a birthday card every year and, and I used to send him postcards from when I traveled in places that he taught us about it. That's awesome. So early in your career, you worked at very well-known companies like J.P. Morgan Chase, McKinsey, and HP. And I've always said that no one's career is actually a straight line. You zigzag your way through it. As you reflect back, what was the biggest risk you've taken? Oh, gosh. I mean, I feel like I've taken a lot of micro risks. And I think if I had to categorize those risks, they were always about jumping into something new or what felt at times like the great unknown and just kind of not overthinking it, but jumping in and then just trying to do my best to transition and be good at whatever I was doing. And so moving from Birmingham, Alabama to, to go to Princeton and study engineering, like that, that was a huge cultural shift and change for me and risk. Or moving out to California 25 years ago after spending most of my life on the East Coast with no technology startup or operational finance experience and wanting to do technology operational finance at a startup. The biggest risk is jumping in and, and, and really doing something that's new and different and maybe scary. But yeah. I've also taken a few risks that involved opting out. Like I said no to my first CFO title promotion, even though I had been doing the job for a couple of years and was acting CFO and VP of finance, because personally it didn't work for me at the time. And I've also taken time off with both kids up to two years when I've had each of my kids. And I've taken time off between jobs and in transitions. And yet I'm very happy with my place in, in my career at this point. And opting out or saying no to those things, I felt didn't hurt my career, but in fact, in some ways helped me because they helped me recharge my batteries. As a fairly intense person, as you know, Chet, it was you know helpful to recharge those batteries. One piece of advice I'd give based on this is that, especially when you're young, say yes a lot more than you say no. But personally, if you need to say no every once in a while, don't worry about it. Just be thoughtful and intentional about it and enjoy that decision, and then move on. That's awesome advice, Kelly. It's amazing. When we're younger, we always think, and it's amazing that you did this early on in your career, but when you're young, you always think, you know, oh my God, I've got two years to do this and four years to do that. And just being very comfortable with, no, I'm going to take the time off because what I'm doing in the other side of my life is just as important or more important. I'm going to take a break, recharge my batteries and come back to it. And you can still get to all the places you wanted to in probably the same amount of time without you working 100 hours a week and ignoring your personal life. Absolutely. Is that fair? Absolutely. If a younger version of ourselves could actually bend time, I think we would just be better individuals and more balanced much younger in life. It seems like you've done a great job of that. I've tried. Do you have some advice on work-life balance? I feel like you're on that board. The second you have balance, you lose balance, right? Or is there an equation that you use? Well, I, I'm a big believer in prioritization and, and what I call truth and calendaring. I feel like you have to start with what makes you happy. And for me, it's very straightforward. It's family, friends, faith, 
work and self-care. Like those are my priorities in life. I really try to stay balanced across those five things. And I'm intentional about doing it. Each year I look at those five things and and how I spent the last year and and did I make progress and where did I succeed? Where did I fail? And what do I want to do in the next year to, to be better? And it is all about being intentional and balanced. I personally feel like you can have it all, but On any single day, it's very hard. But I think over time, if you keep your eye on the prize and you're intentional about it, and you're also forgiving with yourself when you don't always kind of achieve what you want, you can get there. It is an exercise of discipline in my mind. Why I say truth in calendaring, for me, time is my most valuable asset. I think I got much better at this when I had kids, but I'm very intentional about how I spend my time. And I try to make sure that my time matches my priorities. And again, I'm not going to get it right every day, but over a year, I hope to get it right more than I don't. And I watch my calendar and I watch how I spend my time. And when my kids were little and, and were much more demanding of my time, I blocked time out for not just them, for those five priorities. And I made sure that to the extent it was possible and practical, and usually this worked, I made sure that if I blocked something out, I stuck to it. It's dynamic and you need to really stay on top of it. But I do think balance is possible over time, just not necessarily every day. I love that, Kelly. I love the truth in calendaring and I love the fact that be forgiving, right? Phenomenal advice. You've served as CFO at various organizations, and you and I have actually talked about this, right? What sets apart the best CFOs? For me, there's big picture, and then there's more tactically. And so I'll start with the big picture. So I think about these things in dimensions, and I often feel like to be good at something, like being a CFO or being a leader, you need to be able to flex on these dimensions. And so for the CFO, you need to find the balance between having the heart of a customer servant and the mind of a police detective. So that's my dimension, right? And if you're on either extreme of those things, you're not gonna be successful. So what do I mean? By the heart of a customer servant, CFOs are generally at the root of it, a customer servant, in that we're here to serve our internal and external companies or constituents or stakeholders or partners to help scale a company as efficiently and as quickly as possible. We're not there to be blockers. So that's the customer servant side. But at the same time, there are rules, regulations, compliance parameters that we need to lead the company to adhere to. We need to keep people out of jail. We need to keep the company compliant, right? That's not the sexy part of the job, but it's very important. And so over time, I feel like the best CFOs are able to find that balance. So another example for CFOs is being a big picture thinker versus a detail-oriented kind of analyst. And as you get more and more senior, you need to be more and more big picture, but still sometimes that detail orientation, especially when it comes to holding people accountable, which is a very important part of the CFO's role, you need to be versatile. You need to be intentional about what do I need to do in this situation or where do I need to be based on where I am in my career. And then tactically, I think there have been three things that have been super helpful in my career as being a CFO. And I think this gets to be more personal and it depends on your personality and, and what you're all about as a CFO or a leader, because I think some of this is more is, is broadly applicable as well. First of all, I'm an engineer by training who's kind of a recovering consultant. I am by nature 
a data-driven person. And I think the, if, if you had to distill the CFO's role into one thing, it is you need to bring to bear information, not just a bunch of data, but true information to help your company, your stakeholders, your partners, your teams make better decisions for the company and help the company scale in a judicious way. And so being extremely data-driven is important for that, obviously. Secondly, I'm a person that cares deeply about people and culture. You know, I've run finance at five different companies. I've also run HR at five different companies. And I think being tuned to people and culture has at least helped me be a differentiated and better CFO. And then finally, I think the best CFOs are change agents and are structured about how they bring about change. And so for me, as a recovering consultant, I think about a lot of things in frameworks. And for me, change is all about setting strategy, hiring the best people to support that strategy, putting in place efficient policies and processes to support the strategy and the people, and then putting in place systems to support that whole equation. This is gold. By the way, I use a similar framework and I've been using it for decades now, which is strategy, people, and operations. And I just put the process and the metrics and things like that all under the operations bucket, but it has served me really well. You wear many hats as a board member for several companies, and it's different stages of companies. What is the biggest mistake companies make in reference to execution? Yes, I love this question right now, this period in in (laughs) kind of our, our country and our economy, because I've been thinking about it a lot. And not just now, but over the last couple of years. And I want to start off by saying I'm full disclosure, I'm obviously biased because I've been in the Silicon Valley for 25 years now, and I've worked mostly with companies that originated by being venture-backed. And so that's kind of my stated bias, right? But I feel like one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen is whiplash overreactions to the fear and greed cycle. And it's on both sides. So over the last couple of years, what I've seen and what I've tried to fight against as a board member and a CFO is the greed cycle. Because we have had this amazing market and economy for over a decade now. And what happens when you see this for companies that are not as well run is you have great times, you're feeling good, your burn gets up, you get a little greedy, you don't take controls as seriously, you don't take discipline as seriously. And you create an organization that's kind of floating because the tides are high, right? And then you hit a period like we're possibly hitting now where the fear cycle takes over and people stop hiring or they limit investment or worst case, they start reducing their forces, having rifts. And for me, I think these kind of overreactions following the lemmings, these overreactions are big mistakes. And so what I like to see is disciplined companies during the greed cycle who then come into cycles that are that are not as good and can take advantage of their strong balance sheet, their good positions, their strength in the market, and lead with strength during times like what we may be seeing now, and take advantage of an easier hiring environment, or an environment that has more investment opportunities, whether it's vendors cutting prices more because they need the revenue, or M&A opportunities. And so for me, the biggest mistake that I've seen over 25 years in the Silicon Valley is overreacting to this greed fear cycle. And the best companies are disciplined during the greedy times and then lead with strength during the, the tougher times. 
I absolutely love that. One of the ways I talk about it, when we focus on growth, this is your greed cycle part, people forget that they are growth businesses. There's a word after growth. It has to be a business, right? And it has to at some point have financial leverage in there, like you said, a strong balance sheet and things like that. It just seems like it's on the greed cycle. We forget that it is actually a business and it needs to actually function like one over a period of time, especially if you want it to be durable. Absolutely. And for me, the key word is discipline. Yeah. Discipline. I should say growth disciplined business, right? I'll add the word discipline from now on out. So before jumping into the rapid fire round, I want to get a little bit more personal. Who has inspired you the most? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I would venture to say that a lot of your guests are going to say what I'm going to say, but my parents are hands down. And both of my parents are product of European immigrants whose parents or grandparents came to the United States for a better life. Both sides of the family ended up in West Virginia. Both my grandfathers were coal miners. So their better life was coal mining in West Virginia, which is a tough life, as I'm sure you realize. And my mom died at 39 when I was 17. And she was a wonderful, wonderful mom. Both my parents were kind of American dream stories. She not only taught me a lot about being a good person and, and kind of living life, you know, she was a person that taught me a lot about balance and some of the, the, the things that I focus on in, in my life to be happy and successful. But her experience, she had a long struggle with cancer and her experience taught me that life is short and that you need to really make the most of every day. If you ask people who know me well, Chet, and one of the things that they would say to summarize my personality is that I squeeze every bit of juice out of every day. And whether it's nature or nurture, I, I think that my mom had a lot to do with that. My father was, both parents were from very poor families and he had severe dyslexia before people knew what dyslexia was. And both parents were either the first or one of the first people in their families to ever go to college. He put himself through University of West Virginia. He joked that he was on a Rhodes Scholarship because one of his five jobs was to work on the West Virginia Rhodes projects as a civil engineer. But he ended up building a very successful company, taking it public, selling it later, and had a very, very successful career and is a very happy person. And he really viscerally taught our family and me in particular about the power of the American dream, but about the power of if you can combine taking your education seriously, really hard work and an amazing attitude, you can do anything. And I watched him growing up do this. And he's the type of person, he's had a lot of hardships in his life, but he rarely has a bad day. Like if you ask him about his day, it's always wonderful. He just has an amazing attitude. He's in his late 70s full time and loves every minute of it. And he would say education, hard work, and, and a great attitude were, were kind of what sustained him. I've learned that viscerally. So both parents were very inspirational and very impactful in my life for different reasons. But, you know, for me, that's an obvious answer. That's great. If you had to sum up your purpose in one sentence, what would it be? I try to leave things better than I found them. I really do in each situation, whether it's my family, my friends, my faith, my work, or like even working on myself. And I try to do so in acting responsibly, authentically, respectfully, and again, in a balanced way. And I do think back to my kind of annual goal setting and thinking through family, friends, faith, work, and self-care. Like I think trying to keep balanced on those things and, and being intentionally about being intentional about them 
helps me with the why, helps me keep, you know, organized on the why. But the why really is just to leave things better than you find them. That is phenomenal. So we're now at the rapid fire stage. I'm going to ask you a few questions. I want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind. What is your most prized possession? I would say relationships, but if it has to be material, I'd say my photographs. I have over 98,000 photographs on my computer wow. at last count, and I love them. <laughs> I cherish them. I'm the family archivist, and I really think it, it's because it is a physical manifestation of the memories I have of the great relationships that I've built in my life. And so they're related, but either relationships or photographs, depending on if it needs to be material. What's your favorite meal? Oh, pizza. Any pizza. I've never met a pizza I don't like, except if it has fruit or fish on it. <laughs> One place in the world you would love to visit? Mm, Petra in Jordan. Beautiful, 9,000 years of history, country I've never been to. Yeah. Really want to go there. It's on the top of the bucket list. Which movie changed your life? Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I am more of a book person than a movie person, but if I had to pick a movie, my husband and I were talking about this because it was a hard one for me, but if I had to pick a movie, I think we actually both agreed it would be It's a Wonderful Life. It was our favorite movies growing up and for two similar reasons, which is one, it really focuses on the power of gratitude. And two, it reminds you that your actions, your words can have long lasting consequences that are unintentional. And so you should really be careful how you present yourself and lead yourself in situations. What book changed your life? You know, that's a tough one. So I, I, I'm a voracious reader. If I had to choose one book that is not necessarily changed my life, but was very influential in, in kind of bizarre ways. So I read Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand when I was in my early 20s. And at the yeah. time, it was my favorite book. And I think part of it was because I was kind of a girl brought up in the South to be a people pleaser and think of others before you think about yourself. And the whole concept of egoism, whatever it's called was super interesting to me. I felt like it gave me a license to be my own person. And then I reread it after I had kids in my 40s, and I hated it. And I felt like it was, I didn't hate it. I, I, was, I had a, a lot of antipathy for it because I felt like it espoused too much selfishness. And so it was super interesting for me to read that book twice at different stages of my life and to have completely different reactions. And both reactions were very or both experiences were very influential, but in completely opposite ways. It is really interesting for those of us that love books or movies, right? We romanticize something that affected us in a big way. And I've actually gone back to books I have loved that have shaped me. And I go back and read through them. I'm like, I don't know why I thought this was such a big deal, right? Yes. But at that moment, it was a big deal. And that memory is with us forever, right? So yes. Last question, one word or phrase that best describes great leaders. Yes. So I think leadership is easy academically, but very hard in practice. And for me, it comes down to setting hopefully valuable culture and direction, clearly, consistently, and communicating these things, kind of culture and direction, and then holding people accountable. And so if I had to distill it, it would be clear, consistent, intelligent, and repetitive direction setting, communication, and accountability. That's a mouthful. And of course, we both know that it sounds a lot easier than it is in practice. But for me, that's what leadership is. And so great leaders do that repetitively, consistently over time. 
Kelly, this was so awesome. Really, really enjoyed this. I feel like we could go for another hour on this. Look forward to actually having you back and asking you an entire new set of questions. Thank you so much. Chet, my pleasure. Always wonderful to get the chance to talk with you. And thank you so much for investing your time and energy in this very valuable podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Execution Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. We have many more phenomenal guests and inspiring stories to come. So be sure to join us next time.